Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, overprohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates on today's show. A very special guest, a returning guest. Uh, he was, we talked back in October 5th, 2021, about an earlier book he published in 2019 titled Anointed with Oil, How Christianity and Crude Made Modern America. His name is Darren Dochuk, D-O-C-H-U-K. And since that uh, interview, he's published a new book. The title of the new book we're going to discuss today is Religion and Politics Beyond the Culture Wars, Wars, New Directions in a Divided America. And that was published October 15th, 2021. And this is not his first books. He also published From Bible Belt to Sun Belt, 2010. He was involved in the Rutledge history of the 20th century, published in 2018. Also, God's Businessman, Entrepreneurial and Evangelicals in Depression and War, 2017. Faith in the New Millennium, 2016. American Evangelism, 2014. Sunbelt Rising, The Politics of Space, Place, and Region, 2011. And again, we're going to uh, we're going to talk about this book, Religion and Politics, very timely book. So, Darren Dochuk, thanks for coming back on the show. appreciate it. Thanks, William. It's uh, it's really a pleasure to be back with you. Awesome. Well, so people who may not have heard our earlier interview, can you talk about your background and kind of the arc of your research and writing and then lead into what led you to write this book, Religion and Politics Beyond the Culture Wars? Sure. Yeah. Uh, my, my pleasure. Uh, so, yes, I, I teach 20th century U.S. history. Uh, focus has been on religion and politics. There's uh, a personal d- dimension to that, of course, grew up out west, uh, Western Canada, Alberta to be specific, which, as I've said before, joked before, it's kind of the Texas Texas of Canada. Uh, it's known for its kind of rugged individualism, its conservatism, uh, but also its oil and, and uh, also its, uh, its religion. So uh, growing up in Alberta was always fascinated with the United States. Uh, my family on a annual occasion uh, in the summer would look to go south to, to travel to California. Uh, if you're living in Edmonton, Alberta, you're not going to go north for vacation. So we always went south. And uh, all of that kind of led into a personal fascination with the United States and, and more specifically coming of age in the 80s uh, of, of kind of the political development of the United States and its ties to religion as well. So Something in the DNA perhaps led me to uh, study as a, as a scholar the connections between religion and politics in the United States, uh, with often a, a, an emphasis on the West. Uh, writing about California, for instance, quite often I'm writing a new book on California. Uh, and so finishing my PhD here at Notre Dame in 2005, 
uh, continued on in that journey and, you know, publishing a, a several books dealing with connections between religion and capitalism, for instance, uh, uh, dealing with connections between specifically evangelicalism and uh, the Republican Party as it evolved uh, in the post-World War II years in California. And then most recently, as you mentioned, my recent book, Anointed with Oil, How Christianity and Crude Made Modern America, looking at the uh, the connections between the oil industry and uh, specifically uh, Protestantism, but also Catholicism in the post-Civil War years, uh, looking at how it this relationship has shaped community life, especially in the oil patches of North America, such as Texas and, and Southern California, and also how it's shaped American politics, both nationally and globally. So those are kind of my, my interests. They continue to be that, even as I'm shifting more into a study of religion and environment, religion and politics and energy on a global scale. So uh, the book that uh, we're gonna discuss here is very much geared to those interests. Uh, in fact, it comes out of a project that I initiated, boy, uh, six, seven years ago, when I was uh, part of the faculty at Washington University in St. Louis, uh, which had at that time a brand new center uh, funded by Senator John C. Danforth. Uh, and Dan Senator Danforth, uh, as you might know, uh, was a highly regarded uh, senator from Missouri, also a very devout Christian, a devout Anglican, in fact, I believe ordained, uh, and upon retirement wanted to build a center uh, that would kind of promote the study and engagement of religion and politics. And uh, with his funding, uh, the John C. Danforth Center uh, on Religion and Politics was established in St. Louis on the campus of Wash U. And for three years, I had the privilege of being on the faculty there before taking an opportunity to come back to my alma mater as faculty, uh, where I'm now at Notre Dame. So long story short, uh, in 2013, uh, with the support of the John C. Danforth Center, with all of the resources available, I organized a conference uh, called uh, Beyond the Culture Wars, and it brought together leading historians of American politics and leading historians of American religion and the goal was to put them into conversation with one another, uh, first of all, to see what we could share in terms of methodology, in terms of how we might rethink 20th century U.S. history, uh, and, and then also to think more deliberately about some of the issues, hot-button issues that continue to shape American political culture, the culture wars, uh, again, a catch-all term. Uh, and it was a very engaging, uh, very enlivening uh, event. It brought in scholars from around the country. It also brought in a large kind of interested public from St. Louis and, and from uh, beyond the city limits as well. Uh, that led to what is now before us, and, and that's a volume uh, that has been published recently. Again, these things take time uh, and uh, perhaps more time than I had anticipated, but it's been uh, a labor of love to see this book published. Uh, which includes 14 outstanding scholars of religion and politics in modern America, uh, all of whom I think have contributed uh, in, in fresh ways to, to help us rethink the relationship of religion politics in the recent past, uh, with an eye, of course, to the present. Right, and it's still ongoing. And you can see some of these uh, essays or one of the 14 subject matters. It's really changing. And I think that the intro really lays out that 
this book is an attempt is trying to break down the solidified do binary or duality of this culture war fighting. You talk about the intro is Pat Buchanan's 1992 speech, but I think the the context of all the information in there really kind of shows there's a lot more nuances taking place in the past and the present with uh, religion and politics. So can you kind of talk about the the approach and where you wanted the the general arc of the book to go? I mean, you talk about four different kind of an, fresh analyses. Sure. Uh, and, and again, there's no denying the fact that this was driven by present conditions, uh, political conditions, uh, which in some ways were have already changed since the conference, which again was back in uh, a different uh, presidential administration, uh, but also scholarly, you know, trying to figure out how uh, scholars can reassess the recent past and, and write in light of that for the present. Uh, you know, the over overarching theme really is to say, look, if we look at the 20th century US, uh, we can in fact, and should look beyond these partisan divides as they're related to religion and religious and social issues uh, that we see reified today. Uh, in fact, if we look to the past, uh, there are many different examples of where our categories of liberal conservative or Democrat Republican uh, or right wing left wing just do not really hold up. Uh, and uh, so that was one of the priorities, uh, you know, to, to use kind of this opportunity to think methodology, uh, to look beyond the usual suspects in our histories of modern American religion and politics. Yes, we need to uh, think and talk about Billy Graham, the famed evangelist who had such an outsized importance in 20th century American life. We need to look perhaps past Jerry Falwell, who was instrumental in the rise of the religious right, or likewise a Phyllis Schlafly uh, or, or Edith Schaefer. So uh, a second goal, if you will, was for us to you know, place others in the center, or at least move them to the center of our understandings of modern American religion and politics. Uh, third, to, to look beyond uh, kind of the polarities of American uh, religion and politics, again, in ways that we assume as natural today. Uh, how is it, for instance, that even within the Catholic Church and Catholic political activism throughout the 20th century, there has been uh, robust disagreement? Uh, how has that crossed partisan lines that we might be, again, leaning on today to help us make sense? Uh, and then also just to uh, finally think about uh, ways in which other issues should surface as important, be they immigration, uh, be they foreign policy, uh, be they issues of labor and unionism, uh, which sometimes don't get the attention they deserve. And I think if we bring them into our uh, conversation, uh, our kind of typical understanding of the culture wars through social issues, family values, abortion, and so forth, gets expanded into a much more uh, kind of a broader purview that I think is also constructive to think of, of how civil uh, society has spawned over the last century many different kind of commitments and allegiances and activism based on faith and politics. Right. And it, it's, uh, you have like a broad arch, you go all the way back almost to the turn of the century. Can you talk about some of those early essays and some of the things that happened that may not fit into our present paradigm of understanding. For sure. And, you know, I 
we wanted to cover as much of the 20th century as possible. And of course, in a volume of this sort, uh, you, you are limited. Uh, we did our best to, to cover the terrain, both thematically and in terms of representation. Obviously, uh, we couldn't get all kind of communities of faith represented here. We did our best, although I, you know, in retrospect would have, would have included others. But uh, as it stands, the volume does uh, start in the early 20th century with a couple of essays that I think are just really provocative and, and, uh, and fascinating. One looks at the role of kind of radical religion and radical labor politics in the early 20th century. Uh, in the first two decades of the 20th century, uh, the IWW, Industrial Workers of the World, or otherwise known as the Wobblies, were really the most radicalized union movement in American history. Uh, and it was a union that was known to bring together across the board uh, laborers, uh, across class lines, across gender, race, uh, to really lobby for kind of a radical, if you will, socialist kind of alternative to the American capitalist system. And uh, our first essay in the volume looks at that movement, which is ultimately uh, squelched, uh, you know, in, in uh, 1919, 1920, uh, but to show how kind of a radicalized uh, religious incentive drove many of those leaders of the IWW, including uh, the key the key leaders themselves. Uh, so that that I think raises questions of the relationship between religion and labor over the 20th century, uh, a very different reality in the early 19, early 20th century than it is today, of course. Uh, another one kind of picks up on that theme of the relationship between religion and capitalism. Uh, in a way, and, and this is one of my favorite essays, uh, focusing on American capitalism and agrarian spiritual descent uh, in the 1930s, of course, a period of, of the Great Depression and of the New Deal. And uh, written by uh, Kip Kosick, this, this essay challenges us to, to kind of rethink how religion has shaped the politics of agrarianism, of land-based populism, really. Uh, this was, uh, he charts the rise of kind of a back-to-land movement uh, with protection of land, protection of environment uh, as, a, a, as a, a core concern and shows how our understandings of conservative liberal really break down. The individuals he looks at were Catholic, they were Protestant, uh, they had conservative social values in the ways that they privileged the, the right of the community and local families to really kind of take ownership of their day-to-day -day existence, but they're also quite radical in some ways in calling for land reform, ways in which the structure of capitalism uh, itself would be remade in, in support of farmers, in support of, of rural America. Uh, and then finally, and perhaps we can talk later on about this, is there's a, a chapter on Mormonism and uh, environmental politics, looking more at the mid 20th century. Uh, Ezra Taft Benson, a very important, crucial Mormon political leader who will, of course, join Eisenhower's uh, cabinet as secretary of, of uh, agriculture, a devout Mormon who draws on his own theological kind of understanding of creation care uh, to uh, kind of uh, advocate for conservationist methods, uh, conservationist measures that are both kind of extensive and liberal in their support of federal government regulation, but also individualist uh, and, and communal in their privileging of uh, environmental care as 
a matter of one's personal relationship with the divine. So uh, probably more than you wanted there, William, but uh, those, those found foundational essays, I think, really set the, the, the pace for what, what is coming later in the book. But it is interesting because I think Benson went on to become a prophet, like he was that became the head of the Mormon church, I think. But it was different. The Mormons kind of had a more nuanced a view that you may not think is somebody on the right where they're just predatory capitalists. They had a steward. They have a stewardship kind of concept about their relationship to the land as given to them by God. Very important kind of uh, distinction. You can see them as very unique, uh, especially sure. in, in the Midwest. I mean, <clears throat> well, you have all of these different writers. What kind of disciplines do you think, if you encompass all 14 of those together, what do you think that, that this book has if you look at them overall? Sure. And uh, again, I would just second your opinion about, you know, the importance of understanding uh, Mormon theology and Mormon uh, influence in the West and in issues of land care. And so this essay by Patrick Mason does, I think, show the complexities of that. On one hand, again, advocacy for, uh, you know, conservationist me methods, but only going so far. Uh, and then again, the tension between right and left is is pretty clear, even in the life of, of Benson. Uh, to your question, I mean, this was, I think, experimental, as I said earlier, in a way to bring uh, leading political historians and religious historians together. And out of that, I think we get some surprising outcomes. Uh, for instance, environmental historian Keith Woodhouse does a chapter on uh, Richard Newhouse, who was a very prominent Lutheran turned Catholic minister in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, and beyond. And you may know him as the founder of First Things, which is a very prominent intellectual conservative magazine that will be very influential in the rise of the right uh, in the 1980s and beyond. Uh, and Woodhouse, a political historian, someone who doesn't necessarily or hadn't up to this point considered religion, brings religion into the story of uh, the rise of environmentalism, and then subsequently, as seen in the life of Newhouse, anti-environmentalism. Uh, Newhouse is quite liberal, progressive in the early 70s in his view of social issues, social justice concerns. He's an environmentalist as well. But by the 1980s, he's wary of uh, kind of a shift within the environmental movement to a more radical stand, one that doesn't measure with his own theology uh, an anthropocentric theology, which really places humanity at the center of life on earth. And, and it's at that juncture that he begins to critique environmentalists. So case in point, where a political historian nudged by religious historians to take religion seriously uh, is going to do so and, and with, with great, uh, I think, uh, benefits. The, the reverse is happening too. Uh, Matthew Avery Sutton, for instance, looks at the CIA uh, he's a religious historian. He knows that uh, there are missionaries uh, across the globe in the 20th century uh, doing the work of missions and evangelism, uh, and then pushed and, pre and, and uh, kind of encouraged by political foreign policy historians to look at the CIA, finds that, in fact, missionaries have been very active in supporting CIA missions across the globe, Latin America, Asia, and beyond. Uh, and so these are just two examples. Uh, there's others in which this conversation creates something new that I think not only redefines our understanding in the field itself, 
uh, but raises interesting questions for us in the present and going forward. Yeah, I, thought, I read the the section on God Spooks was really fascinating. John Birch and all these characters and how much the CIA really was involved and goes back to the church committee. So really kind of important. A Midwesterner, no less. I think church was from Idaho. That's right. Um, so really fascinating kind of themes there. Do you, uh, you know, we, we can go back about how this culture wars, how have the culture wars really changed since even you had this conference? I mean, the Obama years, you talk about the change from Obama to Trump to Biden. I mean, uh, how do you think that this book is changing in those in context of that differentiation of administrations? Right. Well, I mean, as I said earlier, we kind of first broached this topic uh, in the age of Obama and, uh, you know, the culture wars, of course, defined in many different ways. I mean, the culture wars, uh, one of our essays by James Kloppenberg, an esteemed uh, professor at, uh, at Harvard, writes about Catholicism and just shows how really since the Reformation itself, Catholicism has always been divided between these kind of progressive and conservative trends. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Those who uh, see truth as evolving over time. Uh, and the authority of the church having to do so as well, versus those who have always been uh, very protective of an absolute, whether it be in terms of authority or or kind of truth itself and in, in the uh, and and Catholic theology. Uh, so the culture wars, one could say, have always been there in Western religion. Uh, I'm not going to argue with that, but it really was in the uh, early 1990s, uh, I think, when this notion of the culture wars took root. It took root in academic terms. Uh, James Davison Hunter is a very prominent sociologist of religion who in the early 90s explained that there is in fact an existential kind of tension within American life between progressive, uh, those of a progressive faith, again, who see absolute truth as always evolving, adjusting to the times, uh, versus a more conservative constituency, which again is concerned with protecting what they see as the essential truths, uh, immutable truths of, of the gospel, be it, or, or of their Christian faith, especially. Uh, and then Pat Buchanan, as I open with the book, kind of weaponizes that, politicizes that very notion of a culture war and speaking to the uh, Republican National Convention in Dallas, I believe in 92, kind of really lays out the groundwork as Republicans, we are here to protect the true gospel. We're here to protect the true faith 
be it Protestant, Catholic, or Jewish, and to uphold those values in the face of the Clintons, in the face of liberal Democrats. So that's kind of the background of, of this notion of the culture wars itself. And in the Obama administration, Obama years, there, there seemed to have been, at least for a moment, a bit of a reprieve, at least up front. Certainly there are issues uh, that continue to surface to reinforce this notion of a divided America. But we saw it as an opportunity to pause for a second and to reevaluate the scholars. Now to your question, uh, what has changed since? Well, uh, what, what we thought at that conference might have been dissipating slightly or changing uh, has re-intensified. And, and that is again, a, the politicization of faith in a way that really is dividing America in really pronounced ways. And I would say the role of media, you know, has, has helped that along the ways in which media has, I think, assumed a different form and, and more intense uh, kind of influence in American life since then over the past 10 years has contributed to that. Uh, and we could talk about other political factors, but if we were to rewrite this volume today, I think I would place a little more emphasis on such things as the role in media in modern religion and American politics. And you, know, you mentioned at the intro too, the culture war is always going to be with us. I think that that's one thing that's very important is these tensions between progressivism and orthodoxy are, have been around for a long time. So it's really how kind of how do we adapt to these fever? I mean, I think one of the points, I mean, would you agree that one of the points of your book is to show a more variegated context of these conflicts and that it's not just binary good versus evil? Would you agree with that? For sure. And uh, yeah, no, that's the hope. I mean, for people to read, again, stories about our recent past and to perhaps have a aha moment, a surprise moment of uh, uh, points at, at which left and right Protestant Catholics came together over shared interests or concerns uh, about agrarianism, for instance, and the plight of the land and the plight of the farmer, uh, or over immigration reform in the 1950s, an ongoing issue throughout the 20th century to our present day. Uh, there's one chapter that looks at, at the uh, kind of hearings in the early 50s about immigration policy uh, with the intent to perhaps reform earlier uh, policies from the 1920s that based immigration quotas on nationality, uh, privileging, for instance, immigration from Western Europe. Uh, those who were very much part of the conversation in the 50s to reform immigration, which would indeed happen in the, in the mid-60s, were coming from many different religious backgrounds. Uh, some were self-identified as conservative, some as liberal. So there are ways in which civil society in the 50s, for instance, provided a forum for that kind of uh, cross-denominational, uh, uh, cross-allegiance uh, ideological lines uh, for the betterment of American society going forward. There are other examples of that, and you know we've touched on foreign policy. Uh, one chapter looks at the roles, uh, the role of kind of religious liberty tied to uh, protection of Jews, Russian Jews in particular, since the early 20th century as both a Democrat and Republican issue. This is an issue that has resonated uh, across the political spectrum throughout, uh, with also a religious dimension to that. Reading back on that, one might be surprised just at the cooperative dimensions of this, uh, and maybe something to, again, reconsider today as we're trying to, I would hope, find a more robust 
middle, a more robust civil society, civil discourse about uh, politics and about religion and politics. And I mean, how, how do you think that academics, people like yourself and people who are involved in this book, how, how do you think that they can enhance that to, to come towards the middle or kind of? Right, right. Well, that's the, the million dollar, billion dollar question, what have you. Uh, you know, I, as an academic, I've, I've done my best to, to write books that are hopefully a little more accessible than your typical academic book. And I have colleagues, many of whom are represented in this volume who are doing the same. They are writing books with a, a slightly broader audience through trade presses, for instance, <clears throat> that uh, you know want to bring some of the, the heavy lifting of, of the academy of, of professional historians uh, and make it accessible to a wider public for this very reason, uh, to say, look, uh, we need to speak to a wider public. We can't be cordoned off. We can't be hidden in the ivory tower. We need to bring uh, as historians, a, a sense of how the past uh, can shed light on our present moment. So that is certainly happening through publishing. Uh, you know, what you're doing here, podcasts, uh, social media, I think, has done wonders to uh, open up avenues of conversation. Now, I think they're also doing some damage in terms of shutting down those conversations. But maybe uh, I, I would hope you would agree, I think, that this is a place for civil discourse about about the recent past and, and, and our, our future. Uh, and also just, again, continuing to encourage engagement at the grassroots level uh, through associations that are focused on the local, that uh, can focus on shared concerns about economics, for instance, uh, about social justice issues, uh, as well as some of the other pressing concerns. So, uh, you know, I, I can't say I'm out, out front necessarily of, of this work of the academic, uh, but uh, I, I certainly hope that uh, I can do my part to uh, shed some light on our current moment. It seems like just in my experience, recent experience, a lot more academics are willing to kind of, like you said, kind of get off of the academic plot and, and kind of engage in different ways. I'm finding that in a very positive way. Maybe there's very well-known Canadians like Jordan Peterson doing something more like that, but uh, mm -hmm. I think it really enhances it. And it's good because oftentimes they're not talking to fellow academics. So they're getting, they have to, you know, there's a much different, more kind of uh, energy going on. So, and I think it's very positive. So a lot of that stuff is getting dispersed, hopefully through forums like this. I mean, you talk about, uh, what do you kind of see in these trends? You talk a lot of, you write about religion and politics. What do you see emerging of late and what kind of excites you about kind of trends in this field of study? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm always looking, you know, for, for new, new, new uh, obviously new projects, but projects that speak to the present. And uh, as I said earlier, I'm, I'm interested in questions about environment and, and energy and, and the ways in which uh, as a Westerner, for instance, we are impacted living in communities where uh, water matters, uh, water concerns matter, weather matters, uh, and, uh, you know, the ability to, to work the land matters. Uh, and, you know, hoping to write in ways, uh, I've got a couple projects going, work in, write in ways that uh, are not, uh, is not partisan, uh, in ways that uh, looks at the human experience on its own terms uh, as one that, you know, is, is, is not uh, 
uh, dictated by our current, uh, you know, partisanship and the way in which we align uh, to show the complexities of the human experience in the past in relation to environment, for instance, uh, and to uh, show how there is no neat and tidy solution necessarily, but to at least be aware of the range of responses uh, and potentials for next steps. So that's speaking from a personal perspective that's coming from a reading of ongoing literature, historical, scholarly, but also more popular on issues, for instance, of water in the West, uh, issues of energy across the globe, be it oil, be it coal, or what have you. So I'm excited by those trends, by those trends in scholarship because of the way they speak to uh, really immediate uh, issues that are facing uh, American society, but but uh, global society writ large. Right. So it's it's a much broader issue. And I mean, there's so many changes like you, I think in the book, some of these articles I really found fascinating, the changes in Catholicism, but also the Protestantism of the Latino demographic. I found the megachurch kind of rise of the megachurch. When I was younger, it didn't exist. They would just had this view all Latinos are in this circle of Catholicism, and that's it. It's really changed a lot. Can you kind of talk maybe about these changes in Latinos and Catholics to kind of Protestant in the new America? Oh, for sure. And uh, thanks for highlighting that. I, our last uh, of three sections really deals with more immediate kind of faith-based activism in the post-1970s, 1980s period to our very present day. And these chapters uh, really focus more heavily on, and, on Catholic uh, issues, Catholicism. One looks at uh, Catholic women religious uh, nuns in the post-Second Va Vatican II period of the late 60s to our present day, uh, and shows how, how Catholic nuns have kind of navigated the terrain of feminism, terrain of, of uh, conservative Christian values, social values, as, as it's seen in the church, and carved out kind of their own voice in our political uh, landscape, which continues to resonate today. Uh, there's another chapter written, once again, by a more political historian who hadn't really thought of religion per se, uh, but as it turns out, after having the encouragement to do so, uh, wrote a really substantial, substantive chapter on how uh, not just kind of the Spanish-speaking voter but the Latino voter, the Catholic Latino voter, became a going concern for uh, the Republican Party in the early 70s under Nixon, which would lead to the construction of a Republican coalition that would uh, succeed, you know, certainly by Reagan's era in the 1980s. Uh, there's another chapter on Catholic radical activism against Vietnam in the late 60s, early 70s. It also deals with a very prominent female activists related uh, who, who worked for the Camden 28. Perhaps you're aware of that case of, of uh, uh, anti-Vietnam protesters. But why I like this chapter by Michelle Nickerson is it really does flesh out the complexities of one's Catholic beliefs in relation to uh, current American politics. In that case, in terms of Vietnam, in terms of feminism, uh, the subjects that she studies were both Catholic radicals uh, but they're also quite conservative as well in in their, uh, you know, anti-abortion stand as well. Finally, and this is where you are, and I will now get to that. Uh, our last chapter looks at the rise of Latino megachurches in America, and it it's the most recent kind of most ethnographical piece by Kate Bowler, who has written substantially on uh, Pentecostalism in American life, 
Uh, she's written about other things as well. She's a very prominent writer. And uh, this chapter does a nice job of showing, first of all, how the Latino church, the Latino Protestant Pentecostal church, really from 2000 forward in the last 20 years has kind of captured the attention of this constituency as diverse as it may be. Uh, it's, it's attention to a more dynamic, charismatic, evangelical religion uh, has allowed it to in many ways kind of steal the thunder of uh, Hispanic, Latino, Catholic uh, churches, especially in the West, but along the Sun Belt, places like Los Angeles, Houston, Miami. Uh, and uh, Kate Bowler subsequently kind of unpacks the nuances of these Latino megachurches and their pastors, uh, many of whom have become very powerful, both politically as well as in their church networks, uh, how they have you know, promoted certain teachings of economics, certain teachings of politics and social justice that have allowed them to gain such traction uh, in American life writ large. And this is why they are such a crucial part, for instance, of uh, the Republican coalition today. Right. It's a really remarkable change. I think it's 18 million Protestants, I think she mentions, that Latino Protestants now. It's, it's a very large number. It's a substantial part of our society now. So really interesting. I found that. Yeah. And, really and, and, right. For exactly. The numbers are astounding. And, and what's also astounding is uh, this is a study also of mega churches. So we're looking at uh, really substantial collections of people in one place thousands are attending these churches. And so this isn't a diverse or sorry, a diffuse kind of constituency that one that is very much centralized and uh, as a result has outsized power in, in as a result of, of the, the collective momentum uh, that these very powerful charismatic preachers can, can generate. Right. And you, I mean, just to kind of sum up, your subtitle suggests new directions for a divided America. What directions do you see that are most promising? <laughs> well, that's right. And, and this is where the, the scholar in me, again, uh, wants to kind of uh, hide a bit. Uh, I'm, not a, I'm not a prophet or, or necessarily a political activist, although I do take my, my responsibilities to community seriously. And having just become an American citizen uh, recently, uh, in fact, I just got my first... Uh, uh, call for jury duty for next Monday. So I'm, I'm very honored to do that as an American citizen, uh, having uh, you know taken that vow seriously. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm hesitant in some ways to, to take that call for new directions in a divided America too seriously, not too seriously, but too explicitly. I'm going to do my part quietly. As someone who writes and researches American history, what I think I can do and what I hope others would do is at very least pause uh, to, to read more deeply in 20th century American history to understand the, the, the flavors, uh, the diversity and the pluralism of this experience as a way to say perhaps today we need to re reimagine a future that is more welcoming of that diversity, a more welcoming uh, kind of response to uh, the problems that we face as a society today. Uh, through that, perhaps, it's building networks of, of education, networks of grassroots activism uh, that it involves dialogue across the line, uh, at, very, at very least encourages engagement across the line. So that is a pretty modest uh, statement 
or plea for our next steps, but it's the best one I can make. No, I think it's a great idea. At least talking and, and being able to uh, sensibly discuss variances and, and outlooks is really worthwhile. A lot of times when you think you're really different, you start talking to people, you realize we have a lot of very similar things or we can learn a lot from each other. So I think that's very important. Where's the best place to get religion and politics beyond the culture wars? Well, probably online. Uh, it's available certainly through, uh, you know, some of the major booksellers online. Uh, in some access, some cases, you can have access through libraries as well. This is a volume that is being made available uh, to certainly academic communities across the country. So it is there, and uh, I'm happy to, you know, field any questions via email or, or uh, ask uh, requests for further information, uh, feel free to reach out to me here at Notre Dame. And do you have an email? I can put it in the show notes. I think he gave it to me last time. Sure. Is that the best way to contact you is email? For sure. ddochuk at nd.edu. At nd.edu, correct? ddochuk at nd.edu, correct? So people want sure. to yeah. up and, and ask any questions. Yeah, and if you can't, uh, just look me up in the Department of History at the University of Notre Dame. Awesome. And again, the great talk. Thanks so much for your time. Title of the book is Religion and Politics Beyond the Culture Wars, New Directions in the Divided America, published October 15th, 2021. Darren Docha, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. All good right. talking. All right. Good talk with you again. Stay there. Stay there. Okay. Round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.